With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. What they discovered upon their arrival was almost unspeakable. We are all people. We some form or the dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. Hello. Hello. How is everybody today? Good. Oh, yeah. Are you ready for some murder? Woo, murder. Oh, okay. So, uh, welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I'm Vicky. And I am Janelle. And we are here to, well, normally we would be talking about murder. This is a I'm very excited for this episode, actually. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. for those of you who don't know us, we are a true crime comedy... Dark humor. uh, Dark humor variety show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We cover various crimes and various aspects of the criminal justice system bi-weekly and um you can listen to us anywhere if you hopefully you like this enough to stick around we'll see (laughs) it's a journey for all of us right (laughs) um normally we start off with some news but i'm actually going to skip that this week yeah we we have some doozies of some cases yes um (laughs) but this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners unfortunately you are all stuck in this room with us hey hey. (laughs) um but for those listening at home this is actually kind of a lighter yeah considering considering what we normally talk about a lighter Mm -hmm. episode Mm -hmm. janelle what are we talking about today well I thought it would be very appropriate to talk about some criminal justice issues uh, and look at some really wackadoo court cases. Yes. And in true Janelle fashion, I'm going to take us in the Wayback Time Machine to 1878. And we are going to talk about a case that's very bizarre. Okay. Now... I'm sure you're familiar with the Salem witch trials, right? Yes. Yes, yes. yes. And on this full moon, Mercury in retrograde, <laughs> we're going to talk about the second Salem witch trial. What? what? Wait, there was actually more than one? What? <laughs> I know. I feel like this might have been something I'm, I skipped in history. Uh, yes. Well, history. that's because it's got a little bit of everything. It's got Massachusetts spinsters. Okay. Hypnosis. Okay. Christian science. Okay. All the things. Those are, right? that's one combination yeah. of things. <laughs> it's a whole lot. It's a whole lot. <laughs> but you might also know this by some other names. The Salem Witch Trial of 1878 or the Ipswich Witch Say that Ooh, 10 times fast. That's some good alliteration. <laughs> I is. like that. The Ipswich Witch. Yes. Ipswich, Massachusetts. Okay. All right. So we are going to 
dive right in. Are you ready? Sure, just tell me when to... And go. Oh, okay. <laughs> we have pictures. Yeah. <laughs> Fully interactive, right? this is. <laughs> so a gentleman named Daniel Spoford was born in 1840s New Hampshire, so already not off to a great start. He was from meager beginnings and held a few odd jobs in his youth. We're talking like full-blown jobs before he was 18, as you do in the 1800s. Yeah. And he was ready to go into the Civil War at 19. And then he came back, he had nothing. He was like, what do I do now? So he kind of dabbled with being a shoemaker. Okay. And then he came across some pamphlets. Oh, in God. 1867 by a Mary Baker Glover all about Christian science. Okay, so <laughs> Christian science is pretty wild, y'all. Oh, yes. It, it is, is neither Christian bonkers. nor science. <laughs> it is neither of the things. They seem almost oppositional. Yeah. <laughs> so Christian science is one of the many crazy movements that are happening at this time. It's got a little mix of spiritualism, occult practices, a little dabble of Christianity. So it's kind of a melting pot. Okay. And Christian science was founded by Mary Baker Glover in the 1870s. And she believed, now buckle up, are you ready for this? She believed that reality is purely spiritual and the material world is an illusion. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh, that's very mystical. Right? Very, like, it's very far out. It's like the hippies, <laughs> the early hippies. Yeah, yeah. Kind, kind of. So everything's a simulation, basically. And <laughs> <laughs> they viewed diseases as actual mental errors and not a physical disorder. So, like, if you were <laughs> sick, it was because you weren't thinking right. Right, exactly. you got to get right in your brain. That's why mm-hmm. you're sick. That's um, rational. Yeah, so they don't really go to doctors first. They go to prayer. Oh, boy. <laughs> yes. So treating by a form of prayer and the illusion of their ill health would simply melt away, right? Yeah. That makes sense. Totally. Now, one of the differences is that Christian scientists do seek medical help if they need to, only after they've done extensive bouts of prayer. So, like, what is the point that they're like, all right, this is bad enough to go to a doctor, like a medical professional? I mean, they listed the doctors that were acceptable, and they were optometrists and dentists and barber surgeons. So, you know, the most reliable doctors I love of the, the time, time period. of barber surgeons. That's like my favorite combination of yes. professions. Get a haircut and also and get s- things cut out of you. Surgery. Yes. <laughs> Good times. Now, Mary Baker Glover was a woman who had a really rough life. She was born in New Hampshire, too. Again, really down on her luck from the start. She was chronically ill since birth. And she really did not belong in her home. She butted heads with her father, and then she went to live with another family when she was a teenager. And her father was a really religious zealot type of dude. So very much yelling at her for not praying enough, not being modest enough, you know, over-the-top eccentric. Okay. And her illnesses kind of led her to experiment with different types of alternative healing. So she would do things like starve herself... Or do a bread and water only diet. She tried hydrotherapy and then all kinds of concoctions of things from her pharmacist. 
to try to get herself better. Okay. That sounds like everything that you could try, right, I think. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure that pharmacist made some amazing stuff. Oh, good Lord. This is 1800s, so a little I bit know. of cocaine. You're describing some of these A little bit things. of arsenic. <laughs> I'm like, this is all, you know, 1800s medicine. So yes. it's not like... Mm-hmm. It's poison, basically. Yeah. 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 So... She was not feeling good still, and she was trying to figure it out. And so she married her first husband, and it was already downhill from there even further. After six months of marriage, he died while she was six months pregnant and left her absolutely penniless. Okay. And she was forced to give up her child. So she was living by herself, penniless, going person to person, trying to find somewhere to live. Her child went to live with relatives. And then she married again in 1853 to a dentist who stated that he would help her get her son back. And she's like, all right, well, then I'll marry you. And then he did no such thing. Of course. He was a real piece of shit. And he (laughs) made sure that she would not see her son again until he was 30. Wow. Wait, till his son was 30? Until her son was 30 years old. Okay. So... He wrote a bunch of letters and you can click there okay. and made sure that she would never see her son again. So one thing that he did do, however, was set her on a path to create her whole new religion. That's helpful. <laughs> so he wrote to a mesmerist named okay. Phineas Parkhurst Quimby. It's the most New England name I've ever heard in my life. Yes. And he cured people, not with medication, but instead with his mind. Okay. Okay. Yes. Did it work? Well, we'll find out. Quimby mesmerized her and she reported to be cured. And she went from being practically bedridden to being able to walk 182 steps a day and then to being fully functional. Okay. Self-reported, I'm assuming. Yes. Self-reported. Okay. (laughs) Now, she looked at this in a very religious manner. And even though Quimby did not think that his mesmerization was religious, she kind of figured that there was a little bit of God in it. And she wanted to really look into it and figure out what else could be done with this kind of healing. So she decided to start writing about what she was experiencing and traveled around talking about this new thing she called Christian science. Okay. And she wanted to use the healing powers of mesmerism and prayer to heal everyone. What is mesmerism? Oh, Vicky. I'm so glad you asked. Oh. Because <laughs> Almost is, as if on cue. Right? Exactly. <laughs> I just, in my notes, now ask Vicky what mesmerism is. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't know. Spoiler alert, no idea. So, it's a type of hypnosis where the person is put into a trance by staring into the other person's eyes. Okay. This could also include light hand-waving, touching, a little chanting. Vicky, um, would you indulge me for a moment? I... I guess. I would like to see if I could mesmerize you. Okay. I feel like this is about to get real weird. Now, do you have any ailments currently? Girl, I got all all sorts of aches and pains all the time. Back? I know. Your back back always Back for sure. My ankle a little bit. My knees. All right. Can I lay hands upon you? I guess. (laughs) All right. We're going to see if through my reading of Christian science, if I can mesmerize the shit out of you. Are you ready? Do I have to do anything? Turn towards me. Okay. Okay. Remove your glasses. God. This is making me very nervous. All right. Are you ready, Vicky? I guess. Now stare into my eyes. This is weird. (laughs) 
Uh, <laughs> I gotta say no. Damn it. I that, was very, that was very good, though. <laughs> Thank you. I do. Can we give Janelle a little applause? Because that was. I have to practice more. Although I got to say very awkward. <laughs> I told you I was going to touch you. <laughs> I mean, fair, fair. All right. So apparently it takes a little more practice to mesmerize someone. But did you practice before this? I did. But uh, my dog didn't really respond very well. And, you know, he's excited all the time. So. <laughs> The mesmerization that I just did was a little example of some of the mesmerization that was performed in Christian science practices. So what Mary Glover would do would go around, talk about Christian science, and then teach people how to mesmerize. So it was a lot of laying hands on where you were ailing or on the face, a lot of neck, a lot of gentle touching uh, until they could feel better, right? So you'd have to do this a couple times. Eventually you would start to feel the healing powers of mesmerization. So while she was doing all of this, she decided to finally divorce the man who was pretty much prohibiting her from seeing her son. And she went on her way and began to publish her own little Bible called Science and Health, which was later uh, changed to Science and Health with the Key to the Scriptures. This is all very misleading. Mm -hmm. Can I just say, like, very misleading. Yes. So she started publishing all kinds of things. And this is where Daniel Spofford came in. He met her at one of her gatherings. He was very influenced by her writing, and he began to kind of train under her, and he became a doctor. And she was giving out these kind of doctor things to everybody that would come and train with her. She's like, and now you're a doctor, and you're a doctor, and you're a doctor. So wow. I I'm a doctor. Generous. I know. <laughs> so he began to kind of help her with her publishing, too. So... They're really close. They're working on this Christian science together. They're publishing together. He's mesmerizing. She's mesmerizing. It's magical, right? Sure. So he decides he's going to introduce her to one of his friends, Aza Gilbert Eddy. And next thing you know, he becomes a doctor and she marries him. Wait a second. (laughs) I know this name. Yeah, so. Okay. uh, Spofford and, and Mary grew closer and closer And she needed a lot of help because she would get really tuckered out from her mesmerizing. She would just like get the vapors and be like, all right, I tag you in, let's do this. And he was okay with that. He would work the long shifts, he would mesmerize all day. But in 1877, things began to sour. In their attempt to run a second version of a second edition of Science and Health with a Key to the Scriptures, they got into a disagreement and had a massive falling out. Okay. She had him expelled from the association. Oh my gosh. And stated he was immensely immoral and no longer a doctor. Oh, just like that. Mm-hmm. Dr. Dunn. <laughs> so she even tried to sue him for lost tuition money, saying that he received an education for free by her when he should have paid. I kind of, you know, I kind of like that. I do respect that a little bit, just being like, I did this as a favor, but now you need to pay me. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, this was thrown out very quickly because the court system didn't really believe in Christian science. I know, that is shocking. I am so surprised. <laughs> but 
they were like, uh, this seems like a tiny squabble between you two, so we're not going to take this case on. That would be one of many, many, many cases <laughs> involving Christian science. Oh boy. Now, at the same time, Mary started writing about someone um, else that she thought might be an issue. Now, she knew that mesmerization was good, but it could be used for evil. Okay. Again, <laughs> color me surprised. Yes. And in her next edition of her book, she described this kind of use of mesmerization for evil as malicious animal magnetism. That sounds delicious. <laughs> uh, that sounds sketchy. Right? So M-A-M for short. And she described the usage of mesmerization for evil as mental control. So causing harm to someone, zapping the person's mental energies. And she feared that people would harness this magnetism for evil because she had a student in 1870 who she expelled because he was mesmerizing people by touching their heads. Okay, you just did that, though. I know. Okay. <laughs> but, like aggressively like groping oh. people and kind of saying inappropriate things while he was mesmerizing them and she started to think that maybe this wasn't a good fit and she also declared him highly immoral so like assault you're, yeah. you're describing assault mm -hmm. is what, okay but we see a pattern everyone she dislikes they're highly immoral and expelled I love a term like immoral. Right? It's so specific. <laughs> you know exactly what's wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in 1886, a woman named Lucretia Brown was a follower of Christian science, and she sought healing after she suffered a spinal injury. And, of course, this is the 1860s. What are they going to do for that, right? She yeah. was just kind of bedridden. So she went to them hoping that she could get a cure. She had gone through the mesmerization, started feeling fantastic, but then in... A little bit later, a few years later in, 80, in 87, um, she started to feel worse. So she came back for intensive mesmerization and she felt good. But then the next year, she was also feeling a little bit weird. So she came back again for mesmerization. You know, maybe a third time will stick. Now, she came forward after the third attempt and stated that she was seeing Daniel Spoford for this. And she figured that he wasn't actually healing her. And instead, he was using animal magnetism. Oh, so that's why she kept worse. coming back. Yes. And okay, it's the animals. So, naturally, she took him to court. Oh, <laughs> very. I love a good litigious religion. Yeah. So, her lawsuit stated that he used the powers of his mind to influence and control the minds and bodies of other people and used his said powers and art for the purpose of injuring. And she stated that she feared for her life and that he was going to have complete control over her eventually. Oh. So many people speculated that actually Mary was behind it and got Lucretia Brown to kind of come forward as a patsy, so to speak. Okay, um, okay, I see what this woman's angle is. Mary vehemently denied this, and she actually was called as a witness eventually in the trial. And so I wanted to just read a little interview uh, from a newspaper. They took, 
Oh, the language in this is great. Uh, in an interview with a sister of Miss Brown, the latter being out of town, the lady informed the Globe reporter that she and her family believed that there was no limit to the awful power of mesmerism, but she still had some faith in the power of the law and thought that Dr. Spofford might be awed in abstaining from injuring her sister further. That he does so, she believes there is no possibility of a doubt. In answer to a query put by the reporter, she admitted that should Dr. Spofford prove so disposed, even though he be incarcerated behind the stone walls at Charlestown, he could still use his mesmeric power against her sister. That's, that's some pretty potent power. So she was concerned that even if he was convicted and put in a jail cell, that he would still be mesmerizing people from behind bars. I mean, I could I could see him being like one of those people that goes into prison that's like I'm going to save everybody. All of these sinners. But I don't I don't know. I don't know about yeah. mesmerizing through prison walls. So, of course, the courts were getting all of these reporters flooding in, trying to get all of these interviews, taking all kinds of crazy risks trying to get a story from this. And so when this went to the Supreme Judicial Court in Salem in May, they had 22 witnesses and they were all testifying for Christian science and saying that it was good and, you know, his usage of it wasn't Christian science and that he needs to be put away because he's using some other form of magnetism and it's just not the same. Oh, right? Okay. It's not the same. It's not the <laughs> same, I guess. So the judge was listening to all this, and he was getting a little annoyed, to say the least. And he said, you know what, the next time we meet, I want Mr. Spoford in front of me in court on the 17th of May, and I want to see if he can mesmerize me. Okay, I like this. <laughs> Test it out yourself. See what's yeah. real. So... In between these couple of days, when they first had their court appearance to the 17th, the news reporters were going bananas on this case. They were saying everything you could think of and calling it witchcraft. Okay. They said mesmerism and Christian science are witchcraft. And we're back in the 1680s, and this is the second Salem witch trial. <laughs> Uh-oh. Now, come May 17th, Dr. Spofford did not appear in court. Instead, his attorney came in and quietly came to the podium and said, I file a demure. What, what is that? <laughs> now, he filed this kind of sanction action and said that there was no merit in the claims from Lucretia Brown and that the court had no jurisdiction over this because we are in the spiritual realm, baby. Oh, boy. <laughs> and courts don't rule here. <laughs> okay. So, All right. Yeah. So he went on to state that there was no equity in the claim, meaning that in this situation, the law was not flexible enough in the instance to be fair. So they could not have an achievement of fairness in this case because of the Christian science behind it. Okay. Which, you know, is possible. Now, Lucretia Brown's attorney stated that the demure was false and that mesmerization was in fact real and that the law should be flexible enough to take this case because mesmerization is obviously real. Obviously. It's obviously totally real. Totally real. Now, 
the press went crazy over this and they were pushing the second Salem witch trial even more and people were starting to line up outside of the courthouse to see what was going on. They were really stoking the flames and hoping that there would be like another hanging, but (laughs) unfortunately, all they had to hang on to was that one hanging they were hoping for. Come on, just throw her in a river with some stones, please. Oh my God. But no, that did not happen. Um, the judge, after some deliberation, to kind of decided, you know what, this, this is out of control. I'm going to dismiss this because this claim is too vague. And he kind of raised a question, you know, if Spoford was doing this, he would never be able to be stopped. So putting him in jail would do absolutely nothing. He I would mean, still have his powers. That's a good point. <laughs> that right? is a good point. So Brown did appeal to this, but the case was dismissed. Her appeal was denied. And the Christian scientists were highly criticized in the press after this. But they did maintain their church and their teachings. You can still become a Christian scientist today. Oh, yeah. You can visit your local Christian science reading room. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm sure there's one around here. You can read. Actually, I think there's one in Woodstock. Yeah. Yeah. There's one not like (laughs) in the area. Um, But you can still read those readings. And the court deemed, uh, the press deemed this kind of court uh, shenanigans as one of the most bizarre courtroom sessions ever held in the United States ever oh my gosh (laughs) and that is the case of the 1878 salem witch trial oh my gosh not as gory no not as gory as i thought and honestly not as much with witchcraft as i thought there would be it's a little disappointing but (laughs) what are you gonna do more witchcraft next time guys (laughs) so i failed to mention this at the beginning but the way our show works is one of us will pick a topic and we will both cover different stories i have no idea what she's covering she has no idea Mm -hmm. what i'm covering so Keeps things interesting. Yes. Keeps it spicy. Keeps the spark alive. <laughs> so there were a couple of ways that I could have gone with this choice. This was Janelle's choice. Um, I initially thought that um, I was kind of leaning towards looking at a single attorney who happened to be involved in a couple of like wild court cases. Uh, Clarence Darrow, who was actually oh, yeah. a Chicago-based attorney mm-hmm. um, who represented in Leopold and Loeb and the Scopes Monkey Trial regarding the teaching of evolution um, in schools. All very interesting. Would recommend that everybody looks into mm-hmm. those. But instead, um, we are going to talk about what is widely considered one of the worst decisions ever made by the U.S. Supreme Court, although some recent <laughs> rulings... Uh- might be in contention, but... I don't know about that. <laughs> um, today, I'm going to be looking at Buck v. Bell. Mm, is it uh, about to get buck wild? Oh, God. <laughs> Dad jokes. Janelle, we're in public. I know. I can't turn it off. <laughs> um, so, the case centers around a woman named Carrie Elizabeth Buck, who was born in 1906 in Charlottesville. Uh, At the age of three, Carrie Buck was placed into foster care and ended up in the home of John and Alice Dobbs. Uh, Eleven years later, Carrie Buck's biological mother, who is pictured with her here, um, Emma Buck, was committed to the Virginia State Colony for Epileptics and Feeble-Minded because the authorities had deemed her, quote, a low-grade moron and was considered promiscuous for having a child out of wedlock, which, of course, is enough to get you committed. You might as well lock me up. (laughs) Um, So I do think it's kind of important here to give a little context for these terms in the 
diagnosis, shall we say. Um, so I'm sure a lot of you guys have seen this making its way around the internet every once in a while. Um, it is actually, ignore the circle, that's just like something that somebody posted. Um, it is actually from um, the West Virginia State Archives. So as you can see, um, some of the reasons that somebody could be uh, committed include things like women trouble or imaginary female trouble or political excitement. <laughs> um, check, check, check. Literally anything having to do with masturbation. Um, and one of my personal favorites, seduction and disappointment. Oh, and disappointment? A and, combo? Yeah, seduction and disappointment, <laughs> <Okay>. yes. <laughs> One noted towards the bottom of the right column is feeble, feebleness of intellect. And this is something that's going to come up over and over and over again. Um, they used feeble-mindedness to describe a person who lacked productivity or really like whatever else they wanted to throw in there for a person who didn't fit into society or was considered sort of backward. Um, this was feeble-mindedness was a scale of course, okay. um, with imbecility being a very high-functioning, feeble-minded person, and idiocy being very low-functioning. Okay. Does, does that, that scale makes sense, right? Imbecility to idiocy. <laughs> sure. And everything in between. Um, so... Emma Buck is committed in 1920 for this reason. Just three years later, in 1923, Carrie Buck becomes pregnant at the age of 17. Now, they really sort of attacked this as being a, again, a promiscuity thing, um, but it was not. It was actually the result of Carrie Buck being raped by Clarence Garland, who was the nephew to Buck's foster parents, John and Alan Dobbs. So there's that. Um, the Dobbs did attempt to kind of keep the pregnancy quiet um, and secret for as long as they could, but when she began to show, they opted to petition the court to have her committed on the basis of feeble-mindedness and promiscuity. The court granted this request. However, um, there was a, a tiny hitch because most of the colonies wouldn't take pregnant patients, so Carrie Buck had to stay with a different foster family until her daughter Vivian Alice Elaine Buck was born on March 28, 1924, and she then left to join her mother in the same Virginia colony um, with Dobbs taking, care, uh, taking custody of her newborn. And this is where things start to get a little weird. <laughs> Uh, the same month Carrie Buck gave birth, the General Assembly of Virginia passed a law that, quote, allowed for the state-enforced sterilization of those deemed genetically unfit for procreation. Okay. That's so totally a, fine. A little eugenics? Totally little fine, eugenics. right? Yes. Yeah. Um, specifically, it allowed for, quote, inmates of any state institution to be sterilized. Um, and if the institution's board found the patient was idiotic, insane, feeble-minded, epileptic, and or imbecile. That was the requirement. The that was the scale, yes. Yeah. Enter a man named Albert Pretty. He was superintendent of the Virginia State Colony where both Carrie and Emma Buck were being housed. Pretty was a staunch supporter of sterilization and the eugenics movement in general, which at this time is like at its height. Um, 
And he had actually helped to get the Virginia law carefully crafted by this childhood friend of his. He was like, write this law for me. And he did. And pretty... However, he had uh, a troubling run-in earlier in 1917 after being sued for sterilizing Willie Mallory against her will. Although Pretty had won the suit at the time, he had learned that he needed to be a little bit more careful about his practices in the future. And so when the Virginia law actually went into effect, um, Pretty was able to get a list of 14 women approved for sterilization, including Carrie Buck, And Pretty had specifically chosen Carrie Buck because he felt like with three generations, with her mother, herself, and her newborn daughter, um, that he had a stronger case to prove the feeble-mindedness and the low intellect was hereditary. So he did, of course, have to prove um, that he could tell Vivian Buck, the baby, was like her mother and grandmother, Um, And this is from the Embryo Project Encyclopedia, quote, Carolyn Wilhelm, a social worker for the Red Cross, asserted several times that she could find no defect in Vivian. Two weeks before the trial, however, Wilhelm then visited, again visited the Dobbs and decided that Alice Dobbs' uh, grandbaby, born three days earlier than Vivian, was somehow different. Unable to qualify this statement, Wilhelm merely asserted that Vivian was just not quite a normal baby. Wilhelm based these assertions on Vivian's responsiveness and how she crawled. Okay. Super scientific. Totally legit. Yes. Uh, it's a medical it's science. thing. Yes. <laughs> uh, Pretty chose Buck as his test case of the law. So after losing this lawsuit, he's like, even though I support these laws, we got to test them out to make sure that they are constitutionally sound. Um, so... He managed to get Buck's state-appointed guardian to appeal the sterilization decision, eventually taking Pretty to court. For the colony's defense, Pretty recruited Aubrey Strode, um, who was the author of the sterilization law and his childhood friend. Uh, Irving P. Whitehead was found to handle Carrie Buck's defense, but it is worth noting that Mr. Whitehead, um, while he was an experienced attorney, he had also been previously on the board of the Virginia Colony and was also a supporter of forced sterilization. Who would have guessed? <laughs> by the time the case could be tried, however, Pretty had died from cancer and the case was taken up by his successor, John Hendren Bell. The first case in the circuit courts went pretty much how you would expect Um, Strode, representing the colony, called many witnesses who commented on uh, the Bucks obviously being feeble-minded. He also called several expert witnesses who made comment on the science of eugenics, including one um, Dr. Joseph Spencer (laughs) Desjardins. Sure. Yes. De Jardinera. (laughs) (laughs) Who was the superintendent of the Western Lunatic Asylum. Desjardins held that feeble-mindedness was hereditary. Um, This is again from Encyclopedia Virginia. Quote, asked by Buck's attorney whether he had ever traced back along the lines of heredity to find out what was the beginning of the thing. He replied, no, sir. Adam, I think, was a little, a a little off himself on some things. So like, you know, Adam and Eve. Adam was a little like, "Mm." (laughs) 
I'm surprised they didn't call out Eve. I uh, Eve was That's fine. I mean, she is a woman, <laughs> which is enough to make you right? a little. Eh. Uh, Whitehead, attorney for the Bucks, failed to put on any defense of his own. Um, he didn't call any witnesses. He didn't really rebut any of the the witnesses. Oftentimes, they described him as actually advocating for sterilization, even though he was representing um, this client that was against. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> Much of the trial went on in the same manner with the court ultimately deciding in favor of the colony with a written judgment stating that Buck was feeble-minded and by the laws of heredity was the probable potential parent of socially inadequate offspring and should be sterilized. Cool. The rage is building. <laughs> now this was of course moved to the Virginia Supreme Court of Appeals which upheld the ruling of the circuit court on November 12th, 1925. Uh, Buck v. Bell then moved to the Supreme Court of the United States for review in September 1926. Uh, Strode, again on behalf of Virginia Colony, made three primary arguments. Um, One, that Virginia's law did not impose cruel and unusual punishment, that the uh, latter afforded inmates due process of the law, and that it represented a valid exercise of police power which stemmed from the state's obligation to protect the public's health and safety. I just want to say that, you know, that that seat of judges really looks like they're very sensitive to women's issues. This is the most diverse group. What are you talking about? So much faith in this. (laughs) I mean, look at that guy's mustache. I mean... That's trustworthy. That's okay, so don't trust a good mustache. Got no. it. Um, Whitehead, the attorney for Buck, who was, as you remember, a supporter of forced sterilization, submitted a brief to the court that was less than half the length of the opposing counsel's brief. His main were you surprised, really? No. <laughs> His main arguments um, were that sterilization deprived buck of due process by violating her bodily integrity and of equal protection by really only targeting people that the state determined um, were feeble-minded based on the 14th Amendment. Again, from the Encyclopedia of Virginia, quote, he suggested that the procedure's benefits to the patient remained unproven and, in fact, may have been a smokescreen intended to Uh, hide the government's intentions to rid itself of those citizens deemed undesirable according to its standards. The government would never fool us. Right? (laughs) Oral arguments were heard on April 22nd, 1927, and a decision was handed down on May 8th of the same year. The courts gave an 8-to-1 decision upholding the sterilization order and effectively legalizing forced sterilization across the country in a big win for the eugenics movement. Yes. Now, I want to take a look at one particular gem from the majority opinion. Oh, God. (laughs) Written by Justice Oliver Holmes himself. It is better for all the world if, instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for a crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. 
Supreme Court, everybody. I just want to flip this table, and I can't. Please don't. There is a lot of stuff up here. (laughs) Pat would not be super happy with you. Oh, God. (laughs) On October 19th, 1927, Carrie Buck underwent a salpingectomy, which is the removal of the fallopian tubes, um, at the hands of Superintendent Dr. John Bell, uh, sterilizing her before she was released a month later. Now, largely, the press saw this as a huge win for society, and it was sort of viewed as a real progressive step forward. Like, look at this. Decision held step toward a super race. A super race? Are you kidding me? Free of feeble-minded people. Oh, my God. I know. I quit. (laughs) In the 10 years that followed the ruling in Buck v. Bell, seven states in Puerto Rico enacted their own sterilization statutes for the first time, while many other states revised theirs to match the Virginia law. Approximately 28,000 Americans were sterilized in that time period, with approximately 8,300 happening in Virginia alone. It is worth noting that Buck v. Bell has never been overturned. God. Yeah, it's never been overturned in the United States. There was a case in 1942, Skinner v. Oklahoma, that held that sterilization as a punitive measure was outlawed, but that wasn't really the issue in Buck v. Bell. Um, It wasn't until 1974, the 70s, I know some of you were alive then, that the Virginia law would be overturned. And um, much of what was held by the courts in Buck v. Bell has been rendered invalid after the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act in 1990. But really? Like 1990? Yep, that tracks. That is insane. (laughs) Finding out that this was like, yeah, this is still a thing that they've just decided to never touch that's just like hanging around in the ether... That's a little fucking freaky. Like, that's... What else is hidden in our Supreme Court? (laughs) I don't know if I want to know, if I'm being honest. (laughs) Now, since the ruling, historians have poured through records um, relating to Carrie Buck and found, unsurprisingly, that there was absolutely no evidence that Carrie Buck or her daughter had any form of mental illness as you'd probably expect. Um, The sterilization decision was based on a false diagnosis. It was also uh, revealed that, contrary to what all of the experts had said, Vivian Dobbs, Carrie Buck's daughter, had made it onto the honor roll in elementary school. This is her report card. Um, (laughs) You found a copy. Sweet little report card. Isn't it cute? So she had actually made it onto the honor roll in elementary school in 1931 before she actually died at the age of eight from enterocolitis. Um, It was also revealed that Carrie Buck's sister, uh, Doris Buck, had been sterilized without her knowledge after being told she needed to go in for surgery for appendicitis. Same thing, right? While we're in here, <laughs> let me just take those tubes out of you. I mean, you know how men know female anatomy. <laughs> I'm sure it was an I accident. I just poking around and this came out. <laughs> Carrie Buck uh, died on January 28th, 1983, and was buried next to her daughter in Charlottesville. 
75 years after the Buck v. Bell decision on May 2nd, 2002, the governor of Virginia, Mark Warner, issued an apology on behalf of the state. Um, <laughs> kidding me? For, for Virginia's eugenics program, saying that it was a shameful effort in which state government should not have invo- been involved. They also dedicated a highway to Buck v. Bell. That's like... Ret- Are you kidding retribut- me? It's all good now. It's right. They got a highway dedication. The buck overpass. Sorry. Right? Yes. <laughs> if you um, would like to know more about this case, you should check out this book, Three Generations No Imbeciles, by historian of science Paul Lombardo. He was actually fortunate enough to be able to interview Carrie Buck before she passed away and kind of get some of the uh, backstory that didn't come out in the courts because they really didn't give a shit. Yeah. You know? Um, but that is the story of Buck v. Bell. Wow. Ending with a downer. <laughs> I, listen, I never said this was a this was a happy podcast. No. It's not happy at all. <laughs> um, all right, guys. That has been our show. Uh, if you enjoyed this, you can find <laughs> more episodes just like this on badtastepodcast.com. Um, where you can find all of our episodes. Um, we have merch on the website, et cetera, et cetera, all the fun stuff. We're on all the social media. We're on all the podcasting platforms, um, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Actually, it's not iTunes anymore. I don't have an Apple iPhone. Podcasts. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, Get it right. <laughs> I know. We want to give a special thank you to the Blue Box Cafe Yay! for hosting us. <laughs> And to uh, Pat and Rebecca for doing our sound, Ghostly Podcast. You can check them out a little later tonight. Mm -hmm. And to Fringe Festival for having us. Thank you, Fringe. We love Fringe, (laughs) yes. Um, But that That has been our show. It's been our episode. We're the the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. Uh, For folks listening at home, we'll see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Goodbye. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town.